Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. This is Friday, September 4th, 2020. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So in the crushing morosity Olympics, we have, it's very, it's good. It's a photo finish for today's podcast between the, um, uh, the shooting of uh, Michael uh, Raynal uh, in uh, Northwest Washington State, uh, the guy who was uh, wanted in connection with the point blank shooting and killing of a Trump supporter during a confrontation between uh, Antifa and Trump supporters last weekend. Um, in uh, Cleveland, a cop was shot and killed. Uh, in D.C., a cop was shot. Uh, there were a couple of other police invo- things that where it appeared that uh, people were targeting police um, just in the last 24 hours. And we have this Atlantic story uh, alleging that uh, with uh, with anonymous sourcing that Donald Trump called uh, the dead in graveyards, uh, military graveyards, losers, and uh, and didn't know why they deserved to be celebrated for having gotten themselves into the fix that they were in. So it's really a great morning to have a conversation about the future of this country and the c- conditions under which we are heading into this election in, in, in two months. Um Having summarized it in this uh, uh, deeply, uh, d- deeply winning way as we go into the holiday weekend, uh, Christine, uh, which of these events strikes you as uh, as as the most depressing and the least uh, amenable or susceptible to kind of uh, sweet reason and the possibility of change? And I'm the optimist on the podcast. I just want to point out, but I actually I'm going to choose the the death of the uh, the killing of the Antifa. Um, uh, murderer, which is what he was, um, for two reasons. We think, we think, I mean, we're, we're pretty right. sure, but alleged. Yeah. Well, so here, here's what concerns me short in the short term. It was an example of how something we've talked about on the podcast in many contexts, uh, in recent months, which is the lack of, um, the ability of, uh, local officials in some of these places to contain violence. So this was a guy who had been previously arrested uh, for carrying an illegal weapon to a protest. He'd had other, you know, skirmishes with the law. He was arrested and released, not charged, you know, the, the kind of catch and release idea. And eventually he returned to a protest with a weapon. He ended up killing someone with it. So there was a sense in which, you know, there's no control. There are no consequences for, for, uh, behavior that we know has a likelihood of escalating to actual violence. So there was that. There's the fact that the New York Times spent more time talking about the person he shot as being far right than they did noticing uh, and commenting on the fact that he was a 100% Antifa, as he described himself in social media. And I will point out their description of Antifa was extremely uh, mealy-mouthed as well. So again, we have media casting him as a kind of pseudo, you know, uh, activist who was just, as they said in the story, they quoted someone saying, oh, he was really good at de-escalation during the protest. So a way of painting him as a, as a kind of, uh, not quite a hero, but painting him in the most positive light possible and his victim as a, as a right-wing extremist. My concern going forward is that this is not, this kind of political violence, which is really what, how we should see this uh is going to continue. So we already have Antifa calling his 
death at the hands of U.S. Marshals, which from what we know so far was because he drew and fired a weapon on the U.S. Marshals who were coming to arrest him. We have him being, this being called an assassination. We have all these examples of law enforcement violence around the country increasing. That worries me because again, as I've said many times, Joe Biden getting elected to the presidency is not going to end that kind of violence and conflict. Can I just say, you remember when Tom Cotton publishes op-ed and the staff of the New York Times went on this very clever uh, collective uh, complaint that the uh, publication of this op-ed made them feel unsafe. Remember that? <clears throat> this article in the New York Times about the about the killing of, of Michael Forrest uh, Rhino by Hallie Golden, Mike Baker, and Adam Goldman makes me feel unsafe. And I want to explain why. Because this is the Bonnie and Clydeization of Michael uh, Raynal. This article says uh, that he, um, as part of the protesters' security team during the demonstrations, Mr. Raynal's role included intercepting potential agitators and helping calm conflicts Protesters said nightly he would break up fights at Randall McCorkle, a regular at the demonstrations, who said he became close friends with Mr. Radle as they were on. He wanted change so badly, McCorkle said. Radle's death, he said, would likely inspire others to continue the movement for police reform. I was going to say radicalize, but galvanize is a better word, he said. Honestly, I'm going to try to step in his shoes. <laughs> step in his, He was literally a guardian angel, said Teal Linseth one of the main organizers of the Portland protests, he would protect you no matter what. This is a mythologizing of if he, in fact, did this shooting of a psychopathic killer who shot someone in the back of the head. This makes me feel this is the sort of thing that can inspire others to follow his example if the most important news organization in the world is peddling a line about him that suggests that he was a hero assassinated by federal marshals. That is Bonnie and Clyde. That is the glamorization and romanticization, not only of violence, but of terrorist violence. This is the Bader-Meinhof gang in the, in the 1970s getting this kind of coverage from the press in Europe, and I feel unsafe. Abe? Yeah, it's we've moved from um, a sort of denial of um, uh, violence among the protests. Like, you know, it's, it's we, instead of mostly peaceful, because we're, we're, what we're left with um, in these protests is so obviously violent, um, and dangerous that it, instead of um, denying the existence of the violent elements, we will they are now celebrated and um, uh, mythologized instead. But by, by the way, what does it mean that he was there nightly breaking up fights? Okay, that he was part of the security detail of the protests. Who were they fighting with? Right. Well, what they're were often these, what, fighting what, each other. I mean, it should right. be pointed out. And also, there there is a, a very uh, deliberate strategy on the part of Antifa to label people either security or press. The guy, the the, the man who was uh, who finally turned himself in after kicking someone in the head, at, you know, for no reason, was himself also had a security vest on. So their form of security and their form of press is actually a tactic to avoid being arrested for their behavior when when law enforcement comes in to try to quell things. So 
Noah, um, you as as one of the uh, the people, the earliest people to write about the violent tendencies of Antifa in 2016. When you read about this and you hear about what's going on here, um, you know, you must be just thinking, you know, I told you so, you fools. I told you and you didn't listen. Um, and and here we have it on the front page of the New York Times. No editor at the New York Times. No editor at the New York Times said, I don't think we want to be publishing these quotes glamorizing a guy who shot someone in the back of the head. So, like, I, I've just taken to responding to events with uh, chapter numbers from the book. <laughs> So, like, this is just chapter seven. <laughs> I mean, if you'd have checked that one out, you'd be, uh, you know, abreast of this. Yeah, so um, not just within, you know, the, the darker fringes of politics on the left, but also, you know, very prominent members of uh, the Obama administration and people in that orbit um, were very tolerant of episodes of political and politicized violence, organized politicized violence in the streets and in places like Europe. Um because it was in service to the right ideology. Now, the actions weren't defensible per se, but you can understand how they would be motivated to that kind of lawlessness and violence because the provocations are such that they demand that kind of response. Right. So yeah, if you fall into the fringes of the literature on the left, um, as, as you know, way back in 2014, 2015, 2016, you've seen, uh, you know, apologia for violence and, uh, instigations of violence. And we've seen that manifest in surveys now, for example, of college kids, again, for years saying, you know, up to 20%, 30%, 40% saying that kind of uh, violent responses to disturbing expressions, uh, disturbing speech is just another form of dissent. And it's manifested in 2016, as you said, John, in um, events that I have been calling for years, uh, Weimar-esque, where you really had people rallying under banners, black flags and hammers and sickles, knifing each other in the streets. Um, it's the sort of thing that we turned our eyes away from until it became politically tolerable because it involved Trump supporters. Um, but this was much more pronounced on the left. Those violent tendencies were always much more pronounced on the left because they're tolerated on the left more often. And you see it in that New York Times article, the notion now that we have, we can have of people who are tasked with defending, you know, citizen defenders of these movements is rejected when the people who are, uh, you know, make, making pleas for that support and patronizing that kind of support in the form of private security are businesses, for example, that are defending themselves from the lawlessness in the streets that municipalities decline to adjudicate. Um, that's the sort of thing that, that leads to uh, the breakdown of civil society. But this this is just, you know, protest politics. Um, and those kind of, uh, that kind of stuff is cumulative. And or, we're seeing, we're seeing it now. Or by the way, when, um, when protest defense or, you know, may, when may, makeshift security um, is on the other side, then it is um, of course criticized and not wrongly as uh, vigilantism. Right. And that's, that's the dangerous new element um, as, as the press put it, um, when um, the 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 right wing um, uh, counter protesters uh, showed up with uh, guns uh, recently at these protests, then it's then it's uh, then that is recognized as dangerous vigilantism. Um, but when it happens on the left, they're guardian angels. 
I mean, if we then add to this, right? So we've got we've got these confrontations. We've got Kyle Rittenhouse in the streets of Kenosha shooting people. We've got uh, we've got uh, this guy uh, shooting a guy in the head and then getting shot. We've got uh, uh, police apparently with targets on their backs. We've got a car driving through a protest in Times Square yesterday. Um, who knows what else? Uh, this is starting to have the quality of that line from the hunt for red October when, when the late Fred Thompson, uh, before, before he became a uh, Senator from Tennessee said, this business will get out of control. It will get out of control and we will be lucky to live through it. I mean, I don't want to be hysterically alarmist, but when you have these dotted incidents, uh, in different places all over the country and a kind of, um, uh, conspiracy uh, not to lower the temperature on what's going on uh, w- one way or the other, um, not only doesn't it appear uh, that uh, there, there's no clear way that, that, that this stops or that the momentum of this uh, disorder uh, can be halted, uh, but that um, it, will, it will have this slow and steady and inexorable pattern to it uh, that that will uh, just gnaw at us little bit by little bit, even if it doesn't all just end in a giant total, you know, nationwide conflagration. Well, and the, I think one thing that we're seeing uh, come to fruition, particularly this week in the news cycle, is the the real and present danger of the. Uh, Wow, we're just like invoking every Tom Clancy cliche we can this this podcast um, of uh, of um, the moral capital that the press and a lot of leaders on the left squandered by suppressing and pretending this wasn't a big deal or just saying oh it's just a you know it's the mostly peaceful protest phrase really upsets people on the right for a reason. It's not because we don't think there's such a thing as useful, peaceful protest. It's because it is indicative of a kind of gaslighting and a kind of rewriting of what is going on right in front of us uh, with regard to how these protests have played out. And we've, we've talked about the congressional baseball game shooting a few times, but someone needs to start there and just start tracking both the rhetoric and the actual examples here and there of the uptick in political violence, because it's a real thing. We are not at, you know, peak political violence yet, I don't think, unfortunately, but it is accelerating. And John, I think you're absolutely right that we we are paying the price of not uh, not calling it out. And I do, and you know, you have to include Trump in this with regard to any right-wing violence that has occurred um, as well. But we do now know that what was going on in places like Portland and Seattle was going on for months before any Trump supporters showed dared showed their face on the streets of those cities. Um, so it is not an equivalent situation. It has been treated as such from the moment Trump folks got in their trucks and drove down those streets. So let let let's uh, move on to the uh, to the story roiling uh, Washington and the chattering classes this morning, and from last night, uh, Jeff Goldberg uh, in the Atlantic uh, reporting that uh, in uh, 2018, when uh, Trump canceled his visit to the Ain Marne American Cemetery near Paris, uh, that he had done so because he was worried about his hair. And then in a conversation with senior staff members on the morning of the scheduled visit, Trump said, why should I go to that cemetery? It's filled with losers. 
in a separate conversation on the same trip, Trump referred to the more than 1,800 Marines who lost their lives at Bella Wood as suckers for getting killed. Um, there are a couple ways to respond to this, uh, one of which is to say that uh, in his book, uh, John Bolton apparently, uh, who of course wrote a very a book that is ex- highly critical of, of Trump, said that um, it was because the helicopters couldn't fly. It wasn't because of his hair, uh, and uh, Bolton would have, have had no problem saying that it was because Trump was worried about his hair, uh, if uh, if he had thought that it was because Trump was worried about his hair. Um, so there is that that opening detail. Uh, is is belied by an on-the-record statement by a critic of Trump's from inside the administration. However, the this these these other details, the why should I go to the cemetery? It's filled with losers, and you're a sucker if you got killed at Bella Wood. Um, so, according to Goldberg, he has four uh, four sources. Uh, for this, and uh, and that, uh, that he told Morning Joe this morning that uh, they don't want to come out publicly because they don't want the hostile tweets and they don't want people, you know, threatening them. Guys, please respond. I'm skeptical. I really am. Because it's an old story, because the, no one's named, and because it's such a grab bag of various incidents, right? It's not It's not just that. It's... it's um, uh, also, Trump saying that he didn't want wounded soldiers to show up at a parade because no one likes to look at that. And um, then the, the Goldberg's story ends with a kind of semi-psychological analysis of of, of Trump and uh, patriotism. Um, I, I it's I don't know. It, it's it's a it's a sort of hodgepodge um, of of old unsourced things to me. I don't I don't it doesn't. I'm not terribly impressed with it as a piece of journalism. Well, let, let's so let's let's put it this way: that's uh, Abe in Midtown Manhattan uh, dealing with the uh, the new life of uh, cities and in in the age of Antifa. Um, your sirens there. Um, it doesn't uh, entirely. You don't hear it and go, "Well, that could never have happened," though. Right, you don't. You you can't. You right. can't at this point say Trump couldn't have said it. No, that that and that. I was thinking. I mean, right, that's the problem with Trump is that you know he yeah. because of what we know he's yeah. done and said it's plausible. Yeah, right. It, it's also <laughs> plausible because um, it, it might be this really really weird obnoxious insult comic humor that he likes to indulge in that he and only he seems to think is funny particularly if he does it to a marine uh like john kelly uh i mean you know that he just baiting kelly baiting him and baiting him and saying stuff that would just outrage kelly because he basically wanted kelly to, to 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 quit and leave him alone um even so so there's reason to be skeptical. It's bad that people don't go on the record. But, you know, on the other hand, like, look at the Vindmans. The Vindmans didn't go on the record. Then they went on the record. And, you know, their careers were destroyed um, for going on the record. So who the hell knows what, what is what is the, the, the Vindman twins? So who the hell knows what, you're, what you should or shouldn't do under these circumstances? Um, uh, I hate. Well, that's you know, the thing, and that's really this is why this is so frustrating. First of all, it doesn't really matter in an electoral 
terms, because John, I think, as you've said, um, if his mouth was going to do him in, it would have done him in already. Meaning that if you're of the mind that the president's daily vulgarities and regular assaults on all things decent disqualify him from the presidency, then the election is already over. Then it would have done that because the president can't change the narrative. And going briefly back to support that point, back to the lawlessness and criminality, we now have two polls that suggest that the president isn't benefiting from any of this. The Quinnipiac poll showed that a majority, 50% of likely voters, believe that Donald Trump as president of the United States makes them feel less safe. And 55%, according to ABC News, say that everything he says regarding these protests makes everything worse. So he's not even benefiting from these conditions. People's minds are made up about whatever comes out of the president's mouth. Either you've rationalized it away or it's disqualifying. There's pretty much a binary there. Second, everybody who's served in a high-ranking position in this administration who served in uniform at some point seems to hate this guy. And they're not very coy about it. Kelly's a little bit more. Kelly gets a lot of crap, but he's more coy about it than, John, than um, for example, uh, Secretary Mattis, who the president didn't want to eject from his job, whose, whose uh, actions compelled him to resign, and who came out rather forcefully with an attack on character. And John Kelly has come out with an attack on character. And Vindman has come out with an attack on character. And all these things mount. So it doesn't really matter whether you believe this anecdote or not. I'm not sure whether I do, frankly, but it doesn't matter because the portrait has been painted. It seemed to me to be a strange kind of um, attempt by the Atlantic and Jeffrey Goldberg to remind everyone that when Trump says law and order, what in most American and sends I'll send in the military, I'll send in the National Guard. He's been invoking, you know, military style uh, law and order recently. It it might have been a kind of clumsy. Let's see what off the record quotes I can catch together and turn into a piece to remind people that actually even the people who Trump might call in to restore law and order have no respect for Trump. And and if that was the case, it, it also fell flat because I agree with you, Noah. We already know this. We know this from people who are willing to go on the record and say it who served directly for him. So I I mean, look, the, the issue of whether off the record sources should be, uh, you know, something that is that are regularly relied on is, is, is an open ethical discussion that journalists have been having for a long time. He didn't get a single person on the record with this. That's what makes me a little bit you know, skeptical about, not about the truthful, you know, it, it has the ring of truth, as they say, but that's how most conspiracies develop too, right? There's a little kernel in there. So uh, it would have been better for him to have someone on the record, but there's also nothing new here. Yeah, I okay. think this falls <clears throat> squarely into the category, John, that you um, sort of laid out yesterday of election year things that people think matter that don't actually matter. Well, okay, let me let me, <clears throat> let me me argue with my own theory then. Sure. Um, uh, you, you float this story. Uh, the first debate is in th- three weeks. Uh, this is going to come up in the first debate. In particular, it will come up in the first debate because the story had this detail about how he, you know, he called McCain, a, you know, he called McCain a loser. And then Trump last night said, I never called McCain a loser. And there's actually footage <laughs> of him calling McCain a loser on television. Um so, you know, that makes his other denials, you know, denying that he said something is something that, you know, Trump cannot tell the truth about anything. So you have no reason to believe his denials when he denies it. Um, and so he is going to be held to account for this because it is going to come up in the first debate. I, that This is a detail that he will have to address. Either a reporter will ask him or Biden will challenge him 
directly on it. And it is injurious because this is the one institution in the United States that everybody supports, the military. And the the logic of what he said, because it connects to what he said about McCain, when he said, I like people who weren't shot down, you know, that somehow McCain was responsible for getting shot down by the North Vietnamese and being in a prison camp, uh, going around and saying, uh, why, why are we paying tributes to these losers, isn't entirely beyond the bounds of possibility. Why would he say this? Why would he think this? Who knows? Is it bad? Does he have a bad conscience about, you know, about dodging the draft or however, you know, escaping the draft in the 1960s? I don't know. I mean, uh, he is a, the, the person who said that uh, AIDS was his um, Vietnam. So if he shows no respect for the uh, particular extraordinary sacrifices that, that, that have been made uh, by uh, uh, American uh, military men uh, and women. Uh, another detail in the Atlantic story is that he asked uh, John Kelly, who were the good guys in World War One, looking at American graves in World War One. Um, that's something that can depress his own turnout. Like, they, remember, negative campaigning, negative stories about are not necessarily driven to flip people to vote for you. That is not how they work. They are there to make the people who are soft people who are ready to vote for you go, I, I can't vote for that guy. Not that I'll vote for Biden. I'll just, I'm just going to stay home. That's what negative campaigning is for. This story has to be looked at as part of a negative campaigning effort against Trump, whether it was released this week in order to somehow change the topic from, from Kenosha, uh, uh, is another, you know, interesting question since it seems to come out of nowhere. Uh, and, and as it seems to have been published out of nowhere with no, you know, a, a two and a half year old, uh, uh, story. Um, we should, we should talk about Biden's performance in Kenosha yesterday though. Please um, go ahead. Because it was, it, I, I watched most of it and it was, I mean, Trump has these ridiculous ways of trying to tar his opponents with like low energy, this or that, but it was fairly low energy by Biden. It was, I mean, it was held in a church. So there was a kind of probably a deliberate way of uh, speaking and acting that he adopted there. Um, and John reassured me that everyone's town hall includes planted pre-approved pre-screened questions. Cause that kind of shocked me when one of the women stood up and said, I know I'm supposed to stick to the script, but I actually want to say something else. Um, but he was kind of all over the place. He kept trying to bring up COVID because clearly he was trying to stay on that message. Um, it was a lackluster performance. Now, maybe again, that's part of his long-term strategy, not to rile things up. Um, Nobody asked him, and he still hasn't responded to the issue of having met with a Blake uh, senior, Jacob Blake senior, the father, who is you know clearly anti-Semitic. Nobody's really followed up on that. And look, uh, it could have been a way. It, it was a very good distraction from that. I don't, didn't see many people talking about how Biden did yesterday. Uh, guys, what, what's your? Well, I don't know what he can, you know, he's in this position because he, he thinks he ha that the, his support sort of among, I, I don't know, you know, the, the more radical elements of the left is, is so fragile and, um, and, you know, susceptible to his saying anything in favor of law enforcement, um, that I, I don't know what he can say. I mean, he, so the campaign put out an ad in which Biden said, um, this is a time for racial justice. Um, 
And aside from sort of throwing these um, cliches at at the issue, um, he's got to give this appearance of hearing hearing their pain and also and and sort of not face not face to face condemning um, the violence in a weird way. You know, because the, there was a, the woman who stood up at the. At, in, in Kenosha to, to ask him a question. Um, she, she was winding up with a, with a statement that seemed to sort of uh, head towards justifying um, uh, riots because she was saying the difference between protests and riots, you protest to be heard, but uh, this is, you know, we're, we're going beyond protests. And I don't know what, what Biden can say in response that won't, that he doesn't think will upset um, the the social justice elements um, who support the, the Democrats. So let's let's go. Let's be very clear about this electorally. The election, if the election is a jump ball, or you know, even though Biden's ahead, or you know, if Trump has a chance of winning the election, whatever, he's got to win people who haven't yet decided who they're voting for. From what we can tell, more than ninety, more than nine in ten people who say they're going to vote for Trump or vote for Biden have their minds totally solidly made up in the nineties, in in the you know in in that percentile, right? 93 percent. So that's not you're not going for them. You're just going for these people in the middle, or to depress the people who have said they've made their minds up one way or the other. So it's a, a small number of people in the middle. And I don't know that Trump is making much of a case for having high energy. Let me put it that way. Like you're looking at going, guy, you know, he's making the argument again. Biden, Biden's not, you know, we need someone with a lot of high energy, and his high energy is being up at two in the morning tweeting eighty nine times. I mean, I, I don't know that that is a case that is powerful for him to make. Now, again, all of this is performative. There are going to be these three debates. As Christine keeps saying, Biden is on the line in these debates because he needs to look like he's not going to fall asleep or be senile. Remember, that's an incredibly low bar. It's almost like if he meets that bar, Trump is toast because what's Trump's bar? Trump's bar is not being crazy and he can't reach it because he's crazy. Now, sometimes he's crazy like a fox and sometimes he's crazy like a psychopath, schizophrenic, bonkers person who needs to be in a straitjacket. And the two, it's you don't know which is which at any at any given moment. Um, well, look, maybe the a, shallowest possible, maybe the shallowest possible analysis of the electorate is the right one that they just like to hear the right things. Like take COVID for example. There is no reason why Andrew Cuomo should have the approval rating he does. What has he done right? It's just speak in authoritative tones and be very open and uh, forthcoming with the information, at least on the surface, although rejecting investigations, but nevertheless on the surface appearing to be to have his hands around the issue performatively. Um, Joe Biden, similarly grandfatherly sort of uh, a calming presence, even if he doesn't say anything substantive and Donald Trump as a force for chaos, as just a chaotic personality who can't even stay on message for 24 hours, much less project a, uh, an air of competence. Okay. So let me, let me give the you the shallowest a, yeah. analysis of the electorate is that they just really like this cosmetic stuff and don't like that other cosmetic stuff. Then the election becomes a pretty clear 
analysis of how it's how, what the trajectory is going to look like. Okay, let me let me offer you uh, a, a reverse analogy, which is that this story is the beginning of a setup to a reverse swift boat strategy on the Democrats' part. Remember, they've been rolling out all of these Republicans for Biden, Bush officials, uh, McCain people, all this, 300 of them, 400 of them, blah, 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 all these people coming out. Well, what if there's a gigantic military families for Biden? What if, what if, what if there is, you know, there's like three weeks of people saying, uh, my son is in that. My grandfather is in that cemetery. My, I, I, five generations of my family have been have been in the Marine Corps, and the president called my my you know pr- president called my father you know who 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 died in Fallujah a loser. Well, if that is um, the plan, I think it could be um, a winning one for Democrats. I mean, I think that's a very interesting idea because in that case, if there is a concerted effort then to build on this Atlantic story. Trump will take the bait and he will then start denouncing the, the, these um, proposed uh, military families for Biden. He will then call them all losers um, on the record. Well, remember, from the horse's the, mouth, yes. Easily the low, the low moment of his campaign in 2016 was his Don't decision to go, at, yeah, to go at Kazir Khan. Right. For speaking at the Democratic convention, and uh, and uh, there was there was there was no one in his own uh, coalition who believed that this was anything more than an utter calamity, and it was all part of his own thinking that you can never allow an attack to go right. unanswered. But um, there's also a risk for Democrats with this strategy, and that is remember this is we this is we a, my, yeah, I invented this as far strategy. as we know. Yeah. Okay, so but if, if, yeah, if but it's very plausible. Go, it is, and if they do go for it, the risk is this long term it's it's politicizing the one institution right now as we said earlier that people still trust in this country and this is a country whose erosion of trust in its institutions is is astonishing and dangerous and if if even if it's a winning short term political strategy for the Biden campaign it has long term uh, terrible consequences for the country i think to politicize the military in such a such a straightforward way look i'm not pretending look, I, that it I hasn't wanna... always been somewhat politicized but this would be okay. amping I mean, up if you take gallup numbers trust in institutions military ranks up there probably the top what was the second ranking the institution post office. that americans the post oh, no. office it was no close. local close. police municipal okay. police yeah. and the most trusted institutions and that's not the case anymore. Right. And it's still up there. But the but, faith um, in that institution has eroded be, dramatically. To be fair, not that I'm now all I'm also excited about my 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 brilliant strategic idea here, so I wanted I want to defend it for five minutes. But I mean Trump did lean very heavily on 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 veterans and military issues during the convention. There was all this talk about how he did this with this act and that money and this money and we got this and we love our vets and the vets and our vets and it's a great with our vets. So uh if they do that, they're not political. I mean, you know, he's he's totally uh, made sure that uh, uh, veterans' issues, at least, are 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 a political issue, and they have been, to be fair, for you know for decades. Right. Like, I mean, recall George- that in order to counter program against a Fox News debate, he was boycotting. He held a fraudulent uh, fundraiser for veterans' issues. Oh, that's right. Yes, thank for you. Which I he totally reimbursed the institutions that never got paid. Yeah, totally, totally forgot that. That was. Uh, mm. Was, so he's was, not about that either. That was that was quite the moment. Anyway, uh, so I I think this story uh, has more teeth 
than you guys do only because it only because it breaks out it's not it's you know he can say fake news fake news fake news um if somebody doesn't come out on the record to defend him and say right. you know this did not happen i was you know i was there the entire time and i'm the pope and you can trust me for what i say um so far, you know, if, uh, we haven't even heard anybody defending him except Sarah Sanders, who is in the John Bolton account of this event, saying that Trump was in an unholy snit that week because it because because uh, the midterm elections had just happened and the shellacking of the Republicans had just you know he he was still he was dealing with the consequences of the of the you know incredible uh, beating that he took, um, and so he was in a lousy mood and and. Trump in a lousy mood is someone, you know, who will act in nihilistic uh, and self-destructive ways, just like anybody in a lousy mood, I suppose, to be fair. Although the more so, because he is more so than most people on these sorts of things. Um, so that's really depressing. So let's not end on a depressing note. Uh, Christine and Abe, you are both uh, uh, big fans of uh, a Netflix of of the number one show on Netflix right now, and so I think you guys should talk about it so that maybe people can go and 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 watch it and have some fun this weekend. Yeah, but don't don't ponder all off on me. You're also a big fan of it. I, you know, I, I <laughs> am a big fan. I think I talked about it last year or a couple of years I, I, on the podcast, so I wanted you guys because I haven't seen the latest iteration. Oh. But go ahead. So oh. we're talking about. Cobra, Cobra Kai. Kai, yes, um, which is um, an, a a series that's now on Netflix that is um, a sort of updated sequel in series form to the Karate Kid. Um, I was I wasn't even a huge Karate Kid uh, person as a, as a when I was younger, even though it's it was exactly my you know it was sort of geared to me, me at the, my age at the time. I mean, I, I, it was in the atmosphere. I couldn't couldn't escape it. I you know I saw it more than once undoubtedly um but yeah cobra kai is totally delightful and it, it's it's delightful in that way where um the first episode i was watching i thought this might be the worst thing i've ever seen i, I don't know i can't believe this is made i can't believe that people are talking about it and then somehow like you know by episode two i was planning my day around it it's it's a really funny thing, isn't it? Because so Abe and I are kind of the same Gen X generation that definitely I mean, I, I grew up uh, I was I happened to be born the same day Bruce Lee died, which is a fact I've known for a long time and a really weird fact to know about yourself. But that mar- there's a, there was a kind of Hollywood martial arts uh, mood that in the 70s and 80s and Karate Kid was was among that. But what was great, what what I like, I've only watched a few episodes so far, so I'm just at the beginning of it. Um, what I love is that they take uh, characters that in the movie version of the Karate Kid were completely flat and one dimensional. And they've suddenly given them backstories. They've given them <laughs> motivations. They've given them feelings that you can kind of relate to. And they've extremely, in an extremely clever way, made the hero of the Karate Kid, the Ralph Macchio, uh, uh, Danny LaRusso character into kind of a jerk and kind of like someone who you don't really root for at the beginning. You kind of root for the anti-hero. So I'm looking forward to seeing how the tale unfolds, but it's actually, it's really kind of a good escapist thing, especially if you're a Gen Xer. <laughs> okay. Also it's half, the episodes are half an hour long, which is a delight. It's, it's, it's not quite a sitcom. I, I mean, it's a very, very light 
draw i mean it's basically comedic but it, there it, it's not joke there are not jokes and punchlines and things like that and it is this quite amazing conceit which is that the the event that ends the first karate kid where ralph macho daniel uh defeats the you know the evil kind of um nazi kid <laughs> uh uh with the kick for which there is no defense. And basically... Which was an illegal kick. It was an illegal kick. (laughs) Anyway, their lives go in in, in exactly the direction that you would wish them to at the end of the movie, which is that Daniel then becomes this wild, raging success as an adult, and his, and his, uh, his enemy becomes a total loser. They're both living in sort of Encino in San Fernando Valley, and the, and, and they're, what are they? They're 50 years old. And, and, and one of them, and they each have one as a son, the other as two kids. And, and, uh, and, and the story of Cobra Kai is the story of the redemption of the loser evil guy who suddenly wants, is kind of pushed almost unwillingly into becoming a better person. But he doesn't know how because he's really a jerk. But he isn't a jerk, but he is a jerk. And meanwhile, Ralph Macchio, who is this successful car dealer, is himself and a nice guy and a good guy. But he's really kind of a jerk. <laughs> and he doesn't really want to be a jerk, but he kind of is a jerk. And so it's these two jerks and their rivalry is reignited. And it's incredibly unfair to the to the, to the original villain, who, of course is just totally outmatched and outclassed because he's poor and a bum and he's got no life. And there's Ralph Macho is this rich car dealer and who starts moving in on his life because he wants to win again. And, um, and it's just kind of very, it's the perfect passive aggressive Gen X storyline though. Right. I mean, I, I yeah. want to get Noah's skeptical millennial take because there, the, the part of what was appealing to me was that there were so many movies in the eighties that were kind of like that, where they didn't, they, they pretended that the clear hero was this uncomplicated, you know, moral paragon. But as you got older, you thought, really? Was he? <laughs> yeah. Well, I haven't seen the series, so I can't really comment on it, but <clears throat> the original um, uh, Karate Kid the character that Ralph Macchio played had a huge chip on his shoulder the whole time. Like he was kind of a a jerk too. Um, And it was a defensive posture, but that doesn't preclude the possibility that he's actually just a jerk. It's actually a moral fable about class in America too. Actually, there's a whole thing about, there's a whole uh, kind of just below the surface discussion of class, certainly in the movie. And it comes out here and there so far from what I've seen in the series too. Yeah, but yeah, you know I, what? It's totally apolitical. I mean, they they could have and they could have had you know they could have had Johnny the um, the evil uh, the the you know the the blonde bad yeah. guy you know have uh, Trump posters up or something in his room. But there's n- none of that you know garbage that infects yeah. every other show. Is, is I mean, the truth is they're both Trump voters, right? <laughs> both of them are Trump voters. Both Johnny and Daniel are right. almost certainly Trump voters. And I got to close as we go into the Labor Day weekend with this very important observation because um, Christine mentioned that uh, Bruce Lee ignited the American fascination with uh, martial arts. And uh, we learned, some of us learned from uh, the biography, Bruce Lee, A Life by Matthew Poli, or Polly, that um, Bruce Lee's great-grandfather uh, was a Jew. Uh, Moses Bossman, uh, a Dutch Jewish businessman, 
from Rotterdam. So let's just uh, let's just make the point that Bruce Lee was 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 at least partly Jewish, and um, you know uh, that's very important to me because <laughs> you should all know that <laughs> just just because getting to this commentary magazine's deepest roots of representing America fully and American Jewry fully. Not that Bruce Lee was an American Jew or a uh, all that much of an American, actually. I mean, he moved here in, in his uh, teens. But um, anyway. But if you believe in um, reincarnation, uh, Christine is the second coming of Bruce Lee. That is going to be what I want yes. under as my uh, byline from here on out. That's it, right there. <laughs> yes. Black belt. Christine's a black belt. Just remember that. This is true. Christine's a black belt. And with that, we will wish you the most wonderful Labor Day weekend you could possibly have. We'll be back on Tuesday for Abe, Christina, Noah. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.